All right, so we're in Romans chapter 15. Um, let me just pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, I thank you for life in you. Amazing thing, Father, that you made us. And that, Jesus, you came and you lived perfectly and died for us. You've called us out of darkness in your marvelous light, given us your spirit, letting us abide with you and you and us. Um, and that's only going to get better, only going to get better. We will always need you. We thank you for the way you're growing us, Father. Thank you for the way you're changing us to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus and therefore have greater joys and life and vitality and light. So, Lord, may you please bless us as your children today with more grace. Lord, it is by your grace and out of your love that every one of us sits in this room this morning or watches online. And we are so thankful for that. And we ask that you would pour out more grace, Lord, that we might know you and love you more, that we might be changed and helped and invigorated. Lord, the things that said in this text about these people would be said about us. So we love you. We ask you to bless us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just so you know, at the end of the sermon, we're at the end of the service, we're going to have just kind of time where we just pray a number of our people. Um, we have, I think, four, maybe five families that are all moving out across city within the next month, just like different places of this, the world. We still love you, even though you're leaving us. Um, but we're going to have a little prayer time for a number of them that are leaving this week. Um, but I just want to start off my time by just uh, giving a thanks to the Browns. Um, as people who've been missional community leaders for us and leaders in our church for a long time, you guys have been so faithful. I'm very, very thankful for you guys. And just thankful for, um, as I was reflecting this morning, things that I just have seen the Lord building you guys are definitely reflections of his, just as far as like your patience, your diligence. You're always there. You're not flighty. Um, you guys are very careful with your thoughts and careful with your words, which is amazing because some people are careful with their words but not careful with their thoughts. And you guys are careful with both. Something the Lord's really taught you. He's taught you generosity. He's taught you love to pursue and shepherd people. So love you guys a lot. So we'll miss you. And that's all I'm going to say without breaking down. All right. All right. 15-7. 15-7. So if you haven't been here for our sermon series through Romans, uh, we're, we're coming through towards the end of this book. Romans is an amazing book. Um, uh, hit me, hit me actually in some unique ways. I'm not sure how this is going to work in the sermon this week, but somehow this week, I, I one of my themes that I've been kind of a, a hobby of mine that I've been kind of going through lately is thinking through the chronological order of the writing of the New Testament books. And so I've been making a very ugly chart, and at some point in time, I may make Ange ask her to make pretty. Um, but in the meantime, I've just been reading and ba researching and back, uh, back and forth and a bunch of stuff, and um, you know, the book of Romans is written from Paul to the, the Christians in Rome. And eventually a man will show up in Rome, and his name is Clement. And he shows up in Philippians. And Clement will be largely, probably the, the first large leader after Paul and Peter are martyred off in the future. And, um, and he takes up, um, he's actually the, the bishop of Rome. And then eventually he is exiled out of Rome and sent to the Ukraine and Crimea where he is eventually martyred by being tied to an anchor and thrown off a boat. And uh, he wrote a letter called First, he wrote a couple letters. The first one they call First Clement. 
Um, it's not in the Bible. It's non-canonical. It's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. When you read it, um, I'm, reading, I'm reading it right now. It's not that big of a book, but um, he's, it's a letter, interestingly enough, written as pastor in Rome back to Corinth about some of the very themes that God had written through Paul to Rome in the first place. They took heart. These things that we're reading about here, by God's grace, they took heart in Rome. And they became part of, the, part of the fabric of them. And then the people in Rome, likewise, then spread that information back to Corinth. Because you know Corinth? They were kind of early church, kind of Wild West Christians out there. And, uh, and we have the book of 1 Corinthians, which is early in the New Testament. And we see that they were gathered as a group of believers long before they were even pastors. That God hadn't revealed that that's how he wanted the church led yet. And, um, and so from time to time, these letters are written in Corinth. Paul writes four letters. We have two of them. Then, uh, then we have later on, after the close of the New Testament, this stuff written back to Corinth um, about, about humility and togetherness is one of the big themes that, happen that, that Clement writes about. And what's really interesting to me, number one, is like he learned that from Paul, who writes this to, to the Romans. And then in the book of Clement, What's also really interesting is he writes to the Corinthians about how well they had learned it and then how utterly they had lost it. They had moved from being like notably together and humble and like-hearted, like-minded to like just being totally dissipated. And they were back out of unity into individuality and deep into sin. They had gone deep into sin again. And... Um, I guess I guess I just th say that in the sense like this is important for us to listen to today, and for us to listen to and pray through today, because God will teach us today, and then we need to ask the Lord to keep teaching us. Don't we don't we can't move on and say okay we got that locked down that's good we got we got love locked down we got unity locked down, nothing's ever locked down. Our hearts are dynamic. We're fighting against the flesh. There's, there's always this the, the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another, and so if we are to follow the Lord, we need to listen to him today and then watch what he plants. Watch what he plants so we don't become like the Corinthian believers who once have a flourishing garden of this stuff in this text, but then turn into a desert a short time after. So we as a church, Cross Faith Church, let's listen today and keep praying this stuff up. Some of this stuff God's taught us well already. Some of this stuff he hasn't taught us well yet, but let's listen to it well. And for all of us who listen, Keep attending to the truths that God plants in your heart. As soon as you think, I got this, you don't got this anymore. And Satan, your great adversary, is wicked and strong and smart. And um, you are at threat until you're taken home. You're at threat. So don't be ignorant of his devices. Don't be ignorant of his devices because one of his happiest devices is dissension. So here we are. Romans chapter 15. Um, super brief history, Romans 1 to 11, all the guts of the whys of who God is and who we are and the connectivity between it and how all the promises unfolded and how the Old Testament blends with the New Testament and how the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. Amazing pieces culminating in three chapters of God's amazing mercy that is present in God's amazing sovereignty. And so you walk out of Romans 11 with this stunned by mercy moment and 12.1, Paul goes, okay. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, because of all this mercy that's been poured out, what do you do with it? How does that flesh out into our lives? All kinds of instructions in 12 and in 13 about how we live with each other in the faith and how we live with people who hate us and how we live with governments that God has ordained to be on the world 
at the hands of wicked men. And then we come to 14 and 15 where we talk about that God has made um, a spiritual family because that's what the gospel of Jesus has done. Light has come into darkness. Oh, your Jewish darkness. Oh, your non-Jewish gentile darkness. Whatever the darkness is, that we're all in it. Light has come into it. God has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, into his spiritual family. The gospel of Jesus makes you a son or daughter of God. And that always happens. So you can't like God but hate the church because the church is his family. And God doesn't roll that way. So the gospel's brought us out of darkness into his family. And that family is a weird old hodgepodge of stuff if we look at it from the outside, right? They're like Vikings and South Americans. They're rich. They're poor. They're prone to liberality. They're prone to conservatism. They're prone to all kinds of stuff. They're, they're just a group of people that should not exist because they now are one and adopted by the one Father through the perfect work of Jesus because Jesus came to us and told us that we were all living in darkness. And none of us like to hear that until all of a sudden the Spirit works in our hearts. We're like, you know, that's very true. We are in darkness, and he says it doesn't have to be that way. Let me die for you. Let me bring you into light. And so we are the children of God, the children of light, and we gather around the Father. And so therefore his family's funky, right? And, and it's not that we're all saved at the same time. Right? Let's take my friend Juan Hurtado back there. Like, Juan and I came to know Jesus at different times. Like, I came to know Jesus back in the 80s, the last millennium, yeah, barely. And, um, and at a different time, Juan came to know Jesus. And so we will grow in our maturity. We're both, the moment we come to Christ, we know we're both perfectly loved. We know we're perfectly righteous before God because of the gospel. And then we grow. And we grow like a little baby spiritual Juan. Up, oh, and then a little like little spiritual baby Scott, upright, and we grow more and more into the image of, of God. And when that is offset by time and distance, whatever, we may encounter a strong, a stronger, older spiritual Juan and a younger, not so strong spiritual Scott. Or insert your name where it is, and this creates some challenges because it creates in, uh, inconvenience. It's like when you're a parent, and those times that you don't want a parent, but you're the parent. It's kind of inconvenient. Uh, like, oh man, I kind of wish I wasn't than at the parent at this moment. But God's called us to be there, right? It's not about this convenience piece. So 14, 15 is all about that. He's closing out this argument in 15, 7 to 13. So let me just read the first portion here. I'm, uh, Calvin read the whole thing for us. So look at verse 7. 7 says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So remembering, why do we welcome one another? Because what Jesus has done. We are Jesus-oriented people, not performance-oriented people, right? We don't love based because that you love me well, so therefore I'm going to love you. No, 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 no. Jesus has loved us well, and so therefore I love you regardless of how well you love me or not. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He says in 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So my first point is this. Um, God has always wanted us to know what he is doing. God has always wanted us to know what he is doing. Part of the problem for the Roman church is they had lost track of what God had been doing. There's a great book um, called The Explicit Gospel uh, by Matt Chandler, and it talks about the gospel in a vertical way and a horizontal way. The gospel means the good news and is the news of Jesus being the, the, the good and perfect king who's coming and summoning us all, right? 
And there's a couple different ways you can talk about that. Um, there is what he calls a horizontal gospel, which is the historic redemptive line, right? God made the place, the place fell apart, God redeems the place, and he restores. And not only restores, but glorifies, right? So there's that move across the top. That's the, that's the, the horizontal or the historic redemptive gospel. And then there's more of a vertical piece of like, and then how does Nathaniel Foreman fit into that? Because it isn't that Nathaniel Foreman is just sitting there eating popcorn watching historical gospel go by. He has a place in that. So how does he fit in that? How does he fit into creation and fall and redemption and restoration? Well, that's where we understand, okay, well, I don't just simply watch this. I am either redeemed into this or I'm not redeemed into this. So uh, in explicit gospel, they call this the vertical concept of gospel. And like when we do our gospel training here, it's kind of a hybrid of the two of these. But particularly in this text here, it's referring to more of the horizontal gospel. Like what has God always been doing? Because God's been telling his people all along what he has been doing. God's people have a problem in that we don't listen to what he's been doing very well. And so you show up in a group, a mixed group of fellowship, and you're confused because it's mixed, and you're confused because it's convenient. It's like, Please notice what God has been saying all along. In verse 18, eight, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, so that's the Jewish nation, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So the word patriarchs means the fathers, particularly the fathers of the Jewish people. That would be Adam. Uh, that would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Probably throw in David in there, but particularly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those guys are the ones that we call the patriarchs most often. And God had been giving promises to them for a long time. And what he's doing is he said, like, note the promises that God has been giving to these patriarchs for a while. Verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So God was giving promises to the fathers and what was connected is that in order that the Gentiles, so who are Gentiles? Okay, here's the deal. Once upon a time, it's a bunch of mushed humanity, different nations, right? God comes to Abraham, probably over in the Iraq area, and goes, bing! All right, I'm, I'm going to make people out of you. I'm going to make them. He didn't know this, but I'm going to make the Jewish people out of you. They don't exist. So, Abraham, leave your place and go and follow me. And out of Abraham, God creates the Jewish nation through which God would communicate through the whole world, to the whole world through this Jewish people. So the Jewish people didn't pre-exist. God handmade them, handmade their culture, handmade their customs, handmade their celebrations in order to show that he is distinct and then to communicate through. But he didn't do it with them as an end. They were a channel through which God would then communicate to the whole world. How do we know that? Well, he reads a bunch of the promises that were made to the patriarchs. Where is that found? The next verse. Look at 9. Therefore, this is out of 2 Samuel, so this is with King David. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Okay, by the way, Gentiles, anybody not a Jewish guy, right? Black, white, brown, any color, whatever. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. That would be me. I think I haven't run those ancestry tests, and so I think I'm largely this right now. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. So that's, that's strong covenantal language right happening between David and, and God back then. Okay, so this is a patriarch, and notice the Gentiles are in that combination right there. Then he goes in again, it is said, this is in Deuteronomy 32, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. So here we got Moses. 
language with Moses where the Gentiles are supposed to rejoice with all of Israel. And again, verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol, praise him. That's out of Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, so Isaiah is one of the prophets after David. So we see the spread here. Moses, David, Isaiah, the root of Jesse. So this is specifically a promise, like really fleshing out the Messiah, the Messiah who is Jesus, who's called the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. Gentiles were talked about by Moses. Gentiles were talked about by David. Gentiles were talked about by Israel, uh, by Isaiah, because God had said in his promises to Moses, I'm going after the Gentiles. And God has said his promises to David and Isaiah, I'm going after the Gentiles. And not only am I going after the Gentiles, I'm going to win the Gentiles. And they are going to rejoice. Notice what those Gentiles are doing all the way through there. Do you kind of see the verbs in there? Right? Praise among the Gentiles. Sing. Rejoice. Praise the Lord. Let all the people praise him. Um, and in him the Gentiles will hope. The Gentiles get really happy through God. And that was promised to all the patriarchs. God's been telling all along the line what I'm going to do. I made it. It falls. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to restore it. And I'm not just going to do it to individuals and not just going to do it to Israel. I'm going to do it to all people of the world. Not every single person, but people of all the peoples of the world, all the Gentiles of the world. So this has been something he's been saying all along the line. And I would just say, brothers and sisters, it's really important for us when the, when the great Heavenly Father sits down with us and says, let me tell you what I'm doing. It's really important for us to quit what we're doing and listen to what he's saying. When he's giving us big picture stuff, when he's giving us his heart, when he's giving us his purposes, look to the one who loves us so much. Look to the one who saved us. Look to the one who rules all things. And when he goes, look me in the eyes. This is what I'm doing. Look him in the eyes and listen to what he's doing. Listen to the words and details of it. Um, in the fantastic world of parenting, one of the things that happens often is that you can say, look me in the eyes, listen to the details, and significant details are missed. And then there's follow-up conversations and chores and all kinds of stuff that come with that because significant details are not really being listened to. Um, I had a chance, my undergrad is business management, studied it back at the master's college years ago, and there's a guy named Professor Powell. Let's call him Prof. And he was an incredible professor. professor. He uh, did not require attendance any day of his class, but he had a quiz every day of his class. And uh, you don't miss the quizzes. And uh, every day in the class, he would hand out a, a one piece of paper with a rather robust paragraph. It's a word problem. And all of us who would eventually pass the classes, which was not a great majority of times, uh, would learn the first thing you do is you put your pencil down and you read that. And then you read that again. And then take your pencil out. <laughs> and you start He always puts some dead information in there. It looks really good. Find the dead information. Cross that out underline the very significant statements because they were crafted word problems. If you pay attention to them, you win. You don't pay attention to them, you'll be taking that class again. So I learned from Prof Powell and from Doug Burns, happy Father's Day, Dad, um, to listen, to listen well. And to hear the Father, the real Father says, like, listen to what I'm doing. Listen to what I've been telling the fathers all along. I'm going after all the peoples of the world, not you just Jewish people and not you just individual person. So he's been doing all along. The Gentile church was never a plan B. The Jewish people were not the end. They were the channel by which God would pass through this grace to the nations. And, the, and they would be added 
to the Jewish people, but keeping their Gentileness. So you remember, once upon a time, Abraham was, was brought out, and God made a covenant with Abraham, and God actually created a people, created a culture, created style, created dress, created food codes, and all those kind of things. But when, the, in the New, and he says, I'm, through them, I'm still going for the Gentiles, but in the New Testament, we understand more fully, when the Gentiles came to the Jewish Messiah, they were not to become Jewish in culture. They were to keep their Gentileness. Later on in heaven, in heaven, in the pictures of heaven, we see the kings of the earth, kings of the nations bring in their glories. There's distinction, and God really loves the distinction. The non-sinful distinction of the cultures, God loves it, and he wants it kept. He wants the hats, he wants the hairdos, he wants the language, he wants the styles, he wants the songs. He wants the heightened values of beautiful things that he's created. So God has created a multicultural family across all the nations of the world. My question is, are you aware of that? You should be now because I just taught it. Um, and if not, it's right there in your text. You can read it again. But number two, are you ready for it? Are you ready? And, and, and sure, we can think, uh, we can think maybe, maybe race, is, race is probably the easiest to think, thing to think through, like people of different color than you, people of different smell than you, people of different diet than you. But what about more nuanced things? Like what about cultures? Um, in our greater area here, there are different cultures that are the same colors. And quite often, the dissension between those colors, those cultures, is greater than the dissension between other cultures and other races. Are we ready for it? Are we ready to be careful and rethink, like, oh, maybe I'm not superior. Maybe I think I am superior. I never even knew it. So are we ready for that, to be careful with it? But look at what happens to the Gentiles. Look at verse 9. What's the point of it? And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What is God doing? He's reaching the Gentiles he, to do a work in them so that they would glorify him for his mercy. They are happy about the mercy they got. Oh, that's a theme, Romans 12, 1, right? Oh, that's the theme, all Romans 1 to 11, right? God is rich in mercy. So God wants the nations to know that he is rich in mercy and that they would take it in and they would rejoice in it. How do we know that? Oh, that'd be all those verses right underneath it. The Gentiles, they're all rejoicing, they're all singing, they're all clapping it up, they're all being glad, they're praising God together, extolling God together, and they're living in the last word of verse 12, hope. So this is what God is doing. In fact, this week, in case you're new on Sunday, we've been doing this thing called Scripture Soak through the summer. Uh, so our first, two weeks ago, our first book that we read, we're doing one book a week as a church, just casually reading our devotionals, kind of reading it forward and backward. We did First Thessalonians. This week we did James, and so as I was studying this passage, I'm like, oh, I saw this. And I don't know if you caught this too, but in James this week when we were reading in verse chapter 5, 11, it says, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the scope of God's redemptive plan is all the way into humanity, through the Jewish nation he created him, and all the way into all the rest of the people groups of the world. It has always been his plan, and he promised openly about this about his people throughout Old Testament history. So our first piece is this. Jesus came to show God's truthfulness. Second piece is that he wants us to know his plan. Our third point today is to note the mutual certainty that, that is through joy and peace. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So here he's truly closing off all chapter 14, the first part of 15, saying, here's what I'm hoping, this is what I'm praying for for you. The things I've said for the last chapter and a half, pray that God will fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. So he's praying for a new reality in them through the power of the Spirit, not just a shaped up personality, but that the Holy Spirit would do a work, and the Holy Spirit's work would then create hope. Hope in the New Testament. If you want, I'm, not, I'm just tired of, I don't, I don't want to kill everyone off with this, but when you read hope in the Bible, you can just replace it with the word certainty, because that's better in our English than what hope means to us in our English. Hope in our English means not very likely. Hope in the Bible means absolute certainty. So, how do you get the certainty? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his hope is the Spirit would stir in them certainty. What are the tools by which the Spirit will stir, stir the, the, the certainty in it in this passage here? Two things, joy and peace. Now, if you were like me, as I was reading through this, I kind of felt like 13 was kind of a random verse, like all this unity in the Gentiles, and then all of a sudden, like, a weird, like, shifting of the gears. Well, may God hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. But it's not a weird shift because it's not written to an individual person. It's written to them together. This is a prayer for them together. Based upon all the things they just hit here, asking God to give them that joy and that peace by the power of the Spirit so that they can actually have the certainty. So check the formula out here. We abound in certainty when God fills us together with joy and peace. We abound in together certainty, corporate certainty, when God fills us together with joy and peace. That's the formula here. So the joy, what's the joy? Well, the joy is actually everything that just happened in th for the three verses above it, right? The Gentiles, they're all looking at God, and they're amazed at God, and they're singing, they're praising, they're thanking God for his mercy, they find hope in him, they're rejoicing in him. So the, all, all that joy that happens first here, not because life has just got good and the bills got paid and that kind of thing, but instead their eyes are taken off their bills, their eyes are taken off this world, shifted up to the heavenlies. They see who God is in the scriptures and the way he works in life and brings them to joy. So there's a joy. There's a corporate joy by us together having our eyes on Jesus through this stuff right now, preaching and teaching, right, singing. And second, not only as we see the verses, but then second in James, if you're reading this week, did anybody see anything about joy in James? Yeah. I, I, no, I, you don't have to awkwardly call it out. But he says, he says this, and you probably re re remember this. He says in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, we get much joy by looking to who God is and seeing who he is and his promises and who we have our relationship with him now. But secondarily, we then also get joy together as we encounter the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations and embrace them as God's workout tool to build our faith and build steadfastness and conform us into the image of Jesus as described in chapter 8. So joy is seen there. But what about peace? What about peace? What does together peace look like? Number one, there's two ways that peace shows up in the New Testament. Number one, internal peace, and then lateral peace, relational peace. Internal peace is what you feel inside. That's in reference in, Rome, in Romans 8, 6, we hit it there. It said, for, to, to, sorry, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
So to set the mind on the flesh is death. So have your minds just occupied with stuff here. Not even bad stuff, just stuff. Like your lawn, your garden, your vacation, your hopes, your dreams, those, that money, that money you don't have, that debt, all the, all the stuff you got here. Love that could be someday, love that is not happening, fashion, fun, shopping, stuff. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. If that's where we live, this, this, is, this is the life we live. The life we live is death. And actually, if our minds never move up from there, our future is there. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So we as, we as believers set the mind, our minds on the spirit. And what is he doing? What is he leading us? What is he guiding us towards? First in the scriptures. Second, the internal leading of the spirit. That's a life of life and peace. Something you get inside of you. And that's super important. Uh, and all of us who wrestle with anxiety and anger and stress, we know this. Uh, I, mean, I mean, shoot, we nearly identify ourselves by what has taken place of peace in our lives. Oh, I'm an anxious person. I'm an angry person. I'm a stress-filled person. I'm a highly wound person. We identify by the thing that has hogged up the space of peace in our life. I mean, we hit it. So we need that internal peace well. We need to take our minds off this world, set them upon God so we have internal peace. But the peace that's spoken about here is a second peace. It's the peace between parties. Two parties to mention, number one, God. In the book of Romans, we learn that one time we didn't have peace with God. That's the gospel story. All of us did not have peace with God. A couple places in the scripture mentions this, where we were enemies with God. I know you think you're nice, or you think your grandma's nice, but you're not. You're an enemy of God. Um, I was an enemy of God. So let's start off with this. Everybody's an enemy of God until they no longer become an enemy of God. And there's only one way for us to no longer become an enemy of God. In fact, God describes it in James chapter 4. It says God... Um, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word opposes there is military language. It is the forces turning and arming towards. Like, that's not God being like, hey, hey, that is war. Like, we were at war with God. But then God comes to us in our rebellion and our little tiny flesh bayonets, comes to us and says, I will forgive you and I will bring you to myself. And not only bring you into forgiveness, I will bring you to my table. I'll make you a daughter. I know you got guns in your hands right now, but I'll make you my girl. I'll make you my son. I will love you. This amazing grace move from being an enemy of God to being a, lo a loved, beloved son or daughter of God is an amazing, amazing move. And it says, therefore, we have peace with God. Because at one time, we did not have peace with God. And so that's why I can tell you, if you don't know Jesus, that's why I can tell you you don't have peace with God. I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying I didn't have peace with God until God provided a way for me to have peace with him. So I'm not looking down my nose. I'm just saying it stinks to not be at peace with God, and it's only going to get worse. So God makes peace with us, and we can have that peace. So there's peace relationally with God, but then God brings peace relationally with us. And he brings it by giving us a new center, and he brings it by teaching us. So this is a hope. Uh, this is a hope or a wish, a longing that these Roman believers will be so moved by what Jesus did and who he is that they will follow the relational instructions for the last chapter and a half, remembering that God has welcomed them, remembering that God has welcomed the other people, and that they will follow Q with that and say, you know, God is the God of peace and he's brought peace between him and us and brought peace between us. And since God has welcomed them, I will welcome you. 
You're way different than me. I'm way different than you. And we're all different than Aaron. So well, God brings us the peace together, right? And we look and go, okay, we're all different. We're all different. May God bring us that peace. May God bring us that grace. It's not, it's not intuitive and easy. That's why you need to reread Romans 14 and 15. Because when I try to have peace with Seth, and we try to have a relationship, things are going to go wrong because we're just different, right? We're, we're going to have some different biblical beliefs sometimes, some different convictions even. And then he's going to sin against me, and then I'm going to sin against him. Like, we're going to have challenges, and we need God's instructions if we are going to have the peace. So to listen to his instructions, then follow him and treat each other in that way, and therefore grant this joy and this peace, out of which God then gives us certainty. You want certainty in your walk with Jesus. You want certainty for the future. Be deeply involved in God's people, seeking his joy together and seeking his peace together. Joyful hearts and relational peace are the marks of healthy and, mat and maturity in a church. Our, our last piece is this. Um, I mentioned it yesterday, but I just feel like when we hit in the text, I just kind of need to circle around. Our together joy is in our singing. Our together joy is in our singing. All right, so we sang this morning. I, I in no way am saying we sang poorly. I am in no way, I never even noticed a single person that wasn't singing. Um, Okay, so this was no rebuke at all. Just time to readdress the issue. So back in the day, 1990, I'm a high schooler in Palmdale, California. Woot, woot. And uh, I'm at a Christian high school that's mostly non-Christians and some really sweethearted people that run it. And every Friday, Brian Murphy, amazing pastor out in California, I love him, he would get up there with his guitar and play The Battle Belongs to the Lord or other, some other fine tune of the early 90s in worship structure. And I'm, I'm a believer at this time. Like I say, most of my friends, most of my teammates especially, are not Christians. Uh, a lot of them claim it, but a lot of them don't. I'm reading devotionally at night. I'm reading the Psalms in my room on my waterbed. Um, <laughs> and... Um, not the two-pill one, but the OG, the, like, sea of troubles one. Um, and I'm reading uh, and devotionally at night, and I read in Psalms, sing to the Lord. And, 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 and I'm, man, I'm just wrestling with all kinds of stuff at this point in my life. But, like, I'm trying to follow the Lord. I'm trying to listen to what his heart is. And he says, sing to the Lord in the text. And I'm like, that's kind of rough. Good thing that's not for me. Because those Friday mornings when you chapel, it's like 150 people not singing, and Brian up on this really high elevated stage singing, and, um, and I started reading these texts about sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. Okay, there's, there's a couple of areas that I'm really starting to learn from the Lord. Number one, I need to sing, and number two, I need to quit poaching. That's a different story. But the singing part uh, was, particularly, was particularly painful because my pride is on the line. I sit in a row with all my co-players in basketball. And I'm reading, I'm like, oh, Lord, no. No, I'm, I'm going through the psalm. You don't have to go through the psalm very slowly to pick up this theme. God's designed you to sing amongst his people. I'm just going to cheat. We're going to look at this. But he's designed you. He's called you out of darkness. He's bought you off the auction block with your mouth to sing to him amongst his people. So I'm reading this. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And then a new song. I mean, pretty soon, there's no way out of it. I got to sing. So enter Friday Chapel. Brian gets up there. Battle belong, And I start singing. And I don't know 
what's coming out of here? Like, I don't know if it's in tune. I didn't know there's a thing called tune. I just didn't know. I, you know, probably you know, you don't know what you sound like until someone officially says, okay, it sounds good. Or like, we should probably tone that down. Um, <laughs> so I start singing. And of course, man, I just started getting ripped on. I just, and and every, every Friday morning, I get ripped on. I'm starting to pray that I'll be sick on Friday mornings and stuff like that. I just, I dreaded it. I was so embarrassed and ashamed of singing. But I knew God wanted me to do it. But it really was, this was the sacrifice of myself. This, this was the apex of sacrifices of myself. There were other sacrifices of my faith. But this one was the most painful because you just take it for the team as you sing for Jesus with two other voices and Brian. And um, it was just hard. And... Um, there's more to the story that I'll leave for another day. Um, but it became, for me, a point where God was really pointing into me and showing me, like, this is what I love, and this is, are you proud of me or are you not proud of me? And in those years were sweet things the Lord taught me. Did I get mocked? Oh, yes, I did. Later on, I found that I sing in key at most times, so that was helpful. Uh, no one's bought my CD. <laughs> um, but it was hard. So then trans transfer, like, a couple years later, like, I'm, I'm singing this culture of people who are really singing after the Lord, but I am, I'm so caught up in who I am, and I'm just so selfish. I'm so prideful. Um, I'm trying to sing, and I'm feeling this little barrier to my singing, and I, and I feel like I need to close my eyes, but, dude, I don't want to close my eyes around anybody else because people might, the truth is, people might see me closing my eyes, and then if they look at me and see me closing my eyes, they might see me closing my eyes. Um, <laughs> They might see that there's a, a, some like I'm weak because I'm trying to be earnest or something like that, right? So 93 maybe, I closed my eyes for the first time in worship, right? And it was a big thing. I'm like, oh, Lord, I just like, I've, I'm just having to shut out. I mean, I feel, like, I feel like when my eyes closed, I feel like they went thong, thong, and everyone went, what's that? Look, look at him. He's got his eyes closed. And, uh, and so I became more comfortable with that, and that really helped me focus a lot of times. So sometimes I close my eyes just to focus my heart and my mind. And, uh, and then came 2010, just giving the history of my worship time. 2010, um, I'm here. We're about ready to plant Cross State Church. I'm here at the downtown arena for this conference, talk about it, whatever. And there's this group called Starfield, and they've had a really cool worship. Woo-woo! Um, I love them. Their worship album was really cool, helpful for me from 2008 to 2010 in my office. I'd sing with it. And these guys show up there. And there's like an empty, it's like 5,000 chairs and only 2,000 people. And I sit about at the 4,000 person spot. I'm way back in the empty things. And I, for the first time there, I, this sounds stupid, but maybe it doesn't sound stupid. For the first time in my life, I had the courage to raise my hands in worship. Because I felt like, you know me. We have coffee. I don't do this, but I talk to you the whole time. Like, I'm expressive. I talk and do this kind of stuff. How in the world am I singing to the Lord going, you know, like, like, like vo full volume singing, my eyes closed, my hands tucked, and like, I, it's just not me. It's just not you, most of you guys. And, um, and that was the first time in worship that I ever raised my hand or hands. And because I'm just so self-aware, so self-conscious. And um, I read, I read a, a statement this morning from these these uh, musicians, and, uh, and they have a mom who's helping them learn. And um, this girl named Katie, Katie Photo, says she credits her mother for teaching her her poise. And she said, whenever we were being shy as kids, okay, this is this is short mom, right? Mom would say, girls, stop being so shy. That's that's thinking about yourself and not considering others. It's pride. And um, uh, it's br brief, but that's really what it was. My pride kept me from singing. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you 
to your life of song. You will sing into eternity. Like, you're going to use this heart expressed in words. You'll sing into eternity. Um, I'd ask them to make some slides for me. Can we go through this? Just, just check this out. In case you're d- doubting this, I made this up. Okay, number one, singing is us using my, this singing is using my best for his adornment. Psalm 30, 12, that my glory may sing your praise, that your glory, the best thing you have, may be dedicated to sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Next one. Singing is using my best for his adornment, same part, towards 12, and that my glory may sing your praise and not. That's probably my typo. Sorry about that. Next one here. <laughs> um, okay, this one here. Um, sing, uh, sorry, I, I jacked this all up. Instruments. God likes instruments. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. It's like a guitar, but jacked up. With the lyre and the sound of melody. Next one. Psalm 147.1. Praise to the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. It's pleasant. Next one for us. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. New song. Not old song. New song. Why new song? Because it's fresh new thought with fresh new creativity. It's not that same old loaf of bread your mom made for years. She loves you. She's made new bread. She's put things together. So new thought, new, new melodies, new harmonies. Next one, please. Clap your hands, all you people. Get them out of your pockets to clap it. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to the Lord with sh- loud songs of joy. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully in the strings with loud shouts. I'll just leave it there. Volume. So when you think through what God has designed you for, part of God's designed you for is for you to be corporately amongst his people and for you to look at him and to use the words and harmony, melody kind of stuff coming out here. You're using your glory, the whole instrument, to proclaim together with each other the praises to God. And in that, you'll find joys to him. And in that, you and we will find confidence in Jesus. What stops you? What stops you? I just want to encourage you to do the work. What slows you down in this? What slows you down? Man, you don't always have to have a hand in the air. You may never even need to raise your hand. You don't need to close your eyes. I can't tell you all the things you need to do, but to earnestly be before the Lord, to earnestly be before the Lord, and to pour out not your voice, but your heart through your voice. So to focus in and don't, with your tone, with your tone and your words, don't do something inappropriate to the Lord of glory. Don't do something really, really weird. And sometimes it is the natural overflow of our hearts. We feel in the moment. And so often it is the planned expression. Kind of like when you plan an engagement, you actually buy the ring and then you set up the time, right? Or when you read a meaningful thing in a wedding, you, you write that down, you think about it, and then you, then you present it at a time that's not just impulsive, right? We come together, we plan these things and pour them out. But be careful and think through what keeps you from taking your spot in Romans 15? What keeps you from being amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, dumping your soul out before the Lord, joining voices and instruments together with loud song and new song to adorn and make us all look past ourselves and look at the King of glory and find joy and find peace and find confidence? This is the beautiful family the Father has made. I hope the Lord will allow you to even take your role in voicing it. Forget yourself. It's kind of hard, especially you dudes. Ladies, for some reason, a lot easier for you, I think. But for us guys, it's really hard to die yourself. Are you ready? Are you ready for those people next to you to look over and let, see you singing like you mean it? The vulnerability. 
of the eyes closed, or the loud voice, the vulnerability of a hand raise, a double hand raise, a clap, a wave, a wiggle, whatever you, whatever is going to come out of you as you pour out your hearts to the Lord. Can you forget yourself and remember the King and help me do the same thing? Let's pray. So Father, we come to you and we are so thankful to be mostly in the room Gentiles and Jewish people gathered by you through the work of Jesus into a family loved so much, but destined to be together on earth and in heaven, and on earth and in heaven um, designed to sing, designed to revel in joy, not just theoretically see you as joyful, Lord, but to experience you as joyful and to proclaim your joys over our hearts and our joys to each other, even when we don't feel it. So, Father, give us the joy to forget ourselves in loving our brothers and sisters in unity. Give us the joys of forgetting ourselves and loving you in song and rejoicing and exaltation with loud voices, with new songs, with the lyre, with clapping, whatever it is, Lord. Take our glory for your glory. And all my brothers and sisters said,